Our This Week in XR podcast is sponsored by our friends at Sapper, the world's leading augmented reality platform and creative studio. With over 11 years of experience working with the world's biggest brands through Zapper Creative Studio. Zapper also has an award-winning web AR platform, Zapworks, that lets you create your own mobile AR magic. Finally, check out their Zap Box, the most affordable mixed reality headset on the planet. Start creating AR over at zap.works or talk to them about your next AR project at zapper.com. Good morning, everybody. I'm Charlie Fink with Roni Abovitz and Ted Chilowitz for This Week in XR. Today is January 20th, 2023, and uh, there's a lot of news to talk about. We have a great guest, Dan Robinson of Red Six. I'm representing in my black Red Six t-shirt. They have created an augmented reality system to train pilots in the air. Uh, It's quite extraordinary. There are applications outside of defense. They were in the Disney Accelerator. So we'll look forward to talking to Dan in 15 minutes, but let's get to the news. Gentlemen, am I wrong to feel cynical about the news coming out of Davos, where the World Economic Forum is meeting? That's the big think tank for uh, CEOs and uh, government officials. Well, I think there's always been a bit of well more than a bit of you know when you gather the wealthiest people on the planet to talk about the biggest problems on the planet all you get are the wealthiest people on the planet talking about the biggest problems on the planet you don't actually make any real progress right i'd be i'd be very interesting to see if anybody has actually done a study to say here's what davos did and talked about and here's the actual productive outcome that came from it <laughs> Uh, I'll bet you it doesn't work out as well as those folks at Davos would like to. You know, and also you get like a parade of banal generalities as packaged as quotes from CEOs. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of interesting. So, so Charlie said, I, I've I've been to Davos. I know we were about to get to that, and I and I've I've uh, I was a tech pioneer twice, and yeah. I got to tell you, when I was there, I'd I'd sit in a room with the people that run the world mm-hmm. the ceos but the presidents of countries like you're sitting there and like there's bill clinton and there's the president of this and the thing of that and there's bono and it's just like mind-blowing <laughs> like everyone gathered in one place in this bunker with like helicopters and tanks and every it was actually scary to be there because you had to hold your badge walking down this trench with people with machine guns on you but when you get there, it's very informal, and they're like, "Okay, you're you're here, so now you could say things for this week with all these important people." And I'd say, "You have you have these conversations with banalities," and I would I would interrupt and I'd say, "Look, all of you have all the money and all the power and authority to change everything. Why is nothing changing?" Yeah, that's a good point. And what was their answer? Uh, I didn't get invited back the next year <laughs> <laughs> because I think I think but Davos is not what people think yeah. it is. Is not a big crazy conspiracy thing. I think that's just nonsense. It's just very rich people having a party, eating good food, hanging out, and just wanting to talk a little bit about fun, cool things that, you know, some altruistic things. But then they go to dinner and they schmooze, and then it's like they go skiing, and then they, it's like a giant winter ski vacation. <laughs> sure. Yeah. They, and I think that's what people miss. It's so the banality of it is it's not some grand conspiracy. It's just rich people uh, with some with some like the new cool people that they invite, like the tech pioneers or something, 
who make themselves feel a little better that they're trying to do something good for the world and then mostly eat good food go to parties and ski so and that's what it is and like the opportunity <laughs> to really make change in the world this is the sad part this is not coming out it, it should be because they really could sit down and like we're not going home till we solve the problems yeah it's not what's happening yeah well, I'm at sort of a, a duller miniature version of that, which is called Sundance this week. And it's very much the same, <laughs> the same tick boxes that you just uh, just mentioned, Rody, just a little bit less uh, exotic, but yeah, pretty much the same. So, so Microsoft laid off 10,000 people this week. Yeah. Uh, and uh, of course, that's always painful, both for the people inside and outside the company. But it looks like uh, one of the things that took a hit was the future. Uh, and that always happens in big corporations when they retrench, they refocus on their core business where they're already making money and they defocus on businesses that cost money yeah. because they're going to make money in the future. Uh, Microsoft is struggling with the HoloLens right now. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, most industries can get by with simpler technologies. Th I've seen many great applications of the HoloLens, but these are bespoke solutions that are not easy to implement. Spatial is turning out to be its own beast. And now we have uh, this big splashy article about Apple rolling back their see-through AR. Um, so I think it really speaks to, for, well, first of all, it speaks to how great, Roni, the Magic Leap 2 is and the great opportunity it'll, it'll have with uh, competitors taken out of the top of the market like that. But it really seems like Microsoft you know, they've had this struggle with IVAS, with the army. Uh, it just seems like the, you know, the blush is off the rose of the HoloLens after six, right, seven you years. That, the, 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 the Microsoft thing for a second. The issue they're having with the army, I think, should not be overly combined with, you know, other, other pieces of like XR technology. Like, I probably can't talk very much about that project, but I'd say there are some really specific things that they needed to do well that they were not geared up to do well. Mm -hmm. I've got friends who work there. Uh, we know something about it uh, from things I can't talk about, but I would just say that like the reason that's not working is not because XR technology can't work. Uh, something it has to do with like the politics of why um, government contracts go to certain big companies. Uh, whether or not they're the right company to do it. Yeah. Um, and I, I think what's interesting is like government procurement, you go down a weird rabbit hole, but government procurement has a strange thing. They want to seek out the fast moving agile startups. They bring them along to a certain point and then they hand over the big projects to other companies. Now I'll have to, one thing I, I, I do want to say, which is interesting, like Anduril has broken that cycle. And the reason Anduril has broken that cycle is that they um, have focused completely on that sector with sufficient capital to not be dependent on government money to allow them to build the, the technology to beat the big kind of players and primes in a very focal sector. So I think what's interesting is like an Anduril type focus on what Microsoft was trying to do would actually have resulted in that thing really working. Uh, but for, for, for Microsoft, it's not the biggest thing in the world. Like this weird esoteric use case of IVAS is not scalable the way that like Word and ChatGPT uh, will be scalable. They have just other things that are, it's a multi-trillion dollar company. You know, uh, a $30 billion contract, as big as it may be, is just not as big as like Microsoft Office and AI. I think this is what's going on. The other piece about the cut, Charlie, I mean, this is really sad. I've experienced this my whole career starting companies. 
is investors need you to feed the volcano. And I think what's happening right now is investors, Wall Street, private equity, everyone is, is demanding tech throw bodies into the volcano for a period of time, and then money gets released again. It's just like this weird psychology. We, we see it in these waves. And I think every company is being forced to just throw their teams into the volcano because that's what the investors want. They want to see that sacrifice being made. And then money comes pouring back. And it's just like a very weird psychology, but it's it's almost primal, like uh, like the Mayans sacrificing people at the pyramid. I mean, that's what investors want. And it's very odd, but everyone, they all do it. And, and, just, and, then, and then the economy starts kicking up again. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I, I, I agree with you through a slightly different lens, Roni. Uh, and and my lens is a bit more like the you know clearly it's it's difficult and and sad when people get laid off from their from their job you know especially if they really like their job and you know they 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 rely on that job but I think there is a natural human dynamic of effectively what we would just call the culling of the herd right that companies grow too big they get too comfortable they get too fat they apply human capital in a fairly inefficient way because their profit margins in really healthy times are so good. Uh, and it's an easy thing to do to just add more bodies to a problem and add more bodies to a division. And when things start to get tough, people realize we're, we're too fat. We have to call the herd. We have to you know do more with less. Uh, and I think you're seeing a lot of companies um, for their hands are being forced, right? That that they are realizing that they need to be more efficient. And I also think, to your point, that the 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 dynamics of the future, as Charlie is sort of referring to, are actually much better left to smaller startups, to companies that are focused on an individual problem and an individual solution, and can do it in the most efficient way possible. Uh, and then drive those into companies that are the right size. Like there's a there's a lot of discussion about what is the right size for various companies and where do they best function and best grow to their point where they should be where they are, right? Um, and many big tech companies have literally just grown too big for their own good. And they suffer the slings and arrows of that. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of people get hurt along the way, but Scott <clears throat> Scott Galloway is calling it the Patagonia vest recession. Yeah, perfect. Right, he's saying that that right. you know the the pressure is going to be more at the top in this recession. That that you know people who are you know frontline workers are in short supply, and people who are white collar workers are in oversupply. Um, and and of course, you know AI is looming over this too, right? Because AI has the potential to um, disrupt a lot of the, you know, more cognitive professions like, oh, I don't know, journalism. Well, Charlie, that's the other, I, I'm really glad you brought that up because I think we've spoken about this before, that the white collar worker is the target for where AI is going immediately. And the, the blue collar, blue collar tech worker, that's the future. So the Patagonia vest wearing sit in front of my computer analyst is in dire straits. Mm -hmm. Like your job existing in 10 years from now is like super unlikely, but the blue collar worker, like you work in a factory with your hands, you're out in the field, you're a nurse, you're a surgeon where, where there's like you and your body are more than just you in front of the keyboard, which is terrifying to like about a billion people right now, right? The yeah. people sit in front of a, all yeah. kinds of people sit in front of the computer and don't move their body. 
those tell me about it but I think this is part of that too. I think this the some of the tech companies are seeing where AI is going to go and realizing we have to start shedding these folks in waves rather than all at once. Like you know, X percent per year for the next decade won't be as noticeable as dumping half a million people at once. That's exactly. So right. I think we're going to keep seeing, other than this feeding the volcano for investors, I think the AI takeover of white collar knowledge work. This is nonstop. This is not. This is not stopping. There's a whole. Th we should do a whole uh, podcast on this one. But you know, not today. Yeah, we ought to get so, ought to get somebody who's working with this. You know, advanced AI to bring in their perspective. I, I agree. I think it's not only going to affect XR, obviously, uh, and XR has always needed uh, context and intelligence to really truly be effective. Uh, so I think AI is nothing but great for XR. Um, but I think its other implications are. Um, much bigger and have to do with our uh, society at large. So uh, last thing I want to bring up before we bring in Dan, of course, was the big announcement that Bloomberg broke, which is the mixed reality headset from Apple is kind of the thing. It's fully included. It looks like a VR headset, but a see-through Magic Leap type experience is not going to happen in the near future because uh, they said they couldn't crack the tech. I mean, flat out, it's too hard right now. And Charlie, how many times have I have I professed Apple makes more news by making less news than yeah. any company on the planet? Right? First of all, how much of this news is just total noise nonsense? I mean, do you guys believe what's I, I I'm very cynical. I don't know if I believe anything that anyone's saying about Apple because I think people are just making up news stories. But I think your I instincts know, are very strong, Roni. I think your instincts are very strong about the fact that. Uh, there is very little truth in the supposed truth of all this stuff. Although Bloomberg, you know, they're not a fly-by-night tech blog, so they might have a source, you know. I mean, supposedly the source that they and uh, the information others uh, breaking keep breaking this Apple news is that they have connections in China in the supply chain somewhere. So uh, let's bring in Dan. Let's bring in Dan. This should be a great conversation. Dan Robinson from red six i've got my red six on you know i wrote a feature story yeah, well, about my flight in red six and uh it's insane it's insanely good it's super exciting there's dan great backdrop dan nice t-shirt um meet my colleagues ted chilowitz and roni abovitz uh, hey, who are as excited as i am about the progress that red six has made that's awesome. It's nice to meet you guys. Charlie, I love I love that t-shirt you're wearing. <laughs> uh, Roni, Ted, it's it's a real pleasure to meet you. Uh, and uh, I love that backdrop as well. That's awesome. Roni, yeah, Roni brought that yeah. up for you. That's I, awesome, Roni. Thank I, you. I can't wait for these guys at some point to get a taste of Red Six. Because it yeah. is it is a thing that you're like, oh, yeah, this should exist. You know, you have this visor in front of you, a second screen. You know, there should be the ability to do AR on there. And and of course, you guys, it didn't exist, right? It was still just kind of reflecting data from the, you know, dashboard, so to speak. Yeah, that's right. I mean, obviously, as as fighter pilots, we we fly with head-up displays a lot, and you know, initially in, in airplanes, and then subsequently in, in visors, but. We never made that leap to to AR, right? There's a lot of challenges of doing AR outdoors, and and obviously there's a fundamental difference between, you know, augmented reality and helmet-mounted queuing systems, right? If you can do one, you can do the other, but uh, you know it doesn't go the other way around. So, 
I guess the, the real challenge we focused on was how do we develop an augmented reality solution that works outdoors in, in really dynamic environments. Um, and that, that was the technical challenge we, we gave ourselves, obviously um, building upon the, the tremendous amount of work that, that had gone in by pioneers such as Roni before us. Well, and, and, and my job typically on this podcast is to back everybody up a step for the listeners, because you guys, because Charlie's actually been in the plane with you and done yeah. it. Uh, and Roni and I know exactly what this is, but I guarantee sure. you our listeners don't know exactly what this is. So you should give them the one-on-one version of what you're actually doing when you get into a scramble jet and you actually use this technology. Yes, yeah, so I, I appreciate that. Thanks. So my, my background, I was a fighter pilot, right? Started out as a, as a Brit pilot and then came over to the US and I was lucky enough to, to fly the F-22 Raptor for the US Air Force. And look, in, in very simple terms, every time I went up to fly and train, I needed someone to fly and train against. And that involves pilots, uh, airplanes, a lot of money um, and, a, and a high degree of complexity that goes with it, everything that supports it. And so simulation forms an important part of the education of a, of a fighter pilot or a you know, standard pilot. And, but simulation can never replace the cognitive demands and loads that we experience when we fly high performance airplanes. So it's essential we get to fly the high performance airplanes. So that, that, but, but do we need to spend all of the money um, trying to provide adversaries to fly against? And the bet I made was the, the blend of simulation, dragging simulation outdoors, if we could make that work, um, would usher in a fundamentally new era in, in combat aviation and, and training overall, right, for the landscape. The challenge was, of course, for that to be enabled, we, we needed to, to figure out how to make AR work outdoors in really dynamic environments, uh, you know, be, be it lighting conditions, be it um, going upside down at high speeds in a markerless background, a, a lot of technical challenges there. And so the, the question I sort of asked myself and challenged the team with when we started the company was, can we make augmented reality work in, in this airplane I happen to be building um, as a test platform? And can we make it work up in the sky? And my co-founder, Glenn Snyder, looked at me as if I was insane at the time and, and said, absolutely not, idiot, which I was. Uh, and so began my education in, in augmented reality. Um, and really, I, you know, I, I kept asking a, a, a series of fundamental, you know, very simple five-year-old questions, um, namely why. And we kept asking why until we came up with a thesis that we thought would work. And over the last five years, we've been developing this now with the US Air Force to create, I guess, the world's first multiplayer video game, quote unquote, played outdoors up in the sky in which you interact with it in, in with real human beings in real vehicles, namely airplanes in this context. And uh, and that's what Charlie got to come fly and, and demo. I was hounding Charlie for a number of years saying, you got to come see this. And and I think, frankly, he didn't believe me. Uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth, Charlie, but I think that's probably true. I was I was scared. Yes. <laughs> All right, by the way, I got to say, I, this is the coolest company, I think, maybe one of the coolest companies in the world. And the fact that, like, you're on the podcast is amazing. I just, it's just like, like, this is like Top Gun times every cool kid nerd that you could possibly imagine. It's like, I, I thought I did cool stuff. And, like, Red Six is just, like, next level insane Top Gun Star Wars. Just, and you're a fighter pilot. So, there you go. Uh, well, and, and here's and here's my my technical question. I get how hard it is to make the thing bright enough that you know when you're flying directly into the sun that you can still see the simulation, other airplanes and the bogies and all the stuff that you're creating. But what I'm more curious about, because I, I know that's a hard problem, but a solvable problem. Mm. What I'm more curious about is the dynamics of a of an aircraft like that, mm. the speed that it's going, the g forces that it's pulling. How are you able to create the tracking 
of the other devices that are not really there in the sky and make your brain believe that's really the enemy aircraft. Yeah. But it's so dynamic, you know, it's so fast. That's what that I'm that's what I'm curious about. Look, guys, I, I'd love to go into that on a on a technical level, right? But a lot of that is the secret sauce that uh, that we've course, built yeah, exactly the inside of it. So right? to, to quote Top Gun, I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you, right? <laughs> anyway, don't don't kill Tad, we need him. <laughs> But no, it's that that and, and it, but but you do touch upon a really a really important point, right? Two fundamental problems we had to solve was how do we track outdoors, doing exactly what you've talked about in a marvelous background, and then having solved that, we thought, okay, we'll 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 go get an AR headset, we'll strap it into a, a helmet, and we're and we're good to go. And then we we met the reality of of doing optics outdoors, right, and the demands of of that. Um, certainly up in the sky. I mean, up in the sky on a bright, bright blue sky, white cloud background, you're talking about a 10,000 nit back, you know, benchmark that you have to exceed. Um, the current headset, as Charlie will testify to, is is putting out 18,000 nits. So we're, we're turning it down to 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 make it work. And, and so it, it's a number of technical accomplishments um, that we're really proud of, namely tracking and, and brightness, obviously being the enabling aspects of that. To go back to what Roni says, look, Roni, coming coming from coming from you, that's that's an immense compliment, and I really do appreciate it because I've always subscribed. Your, your vision was the right vision, a hundred percent, and obviously you were the pioneer in, in terms of what was going on with with AR, um, and, and so the, the whole industry owes a, a tremendous amount to the, the work you you do and the work that continues to happen at uh, Magic Leap. I think for me, when I looked at the AR industry, the one thing I thought it was lacking certainly for the foreseeable future was a, a real concrete use case as to what we'd actually use the technology for to solve real world problems and the interesting thing about where we chose to play it's technically difficult to do it but um I, just from my own background we're, we're focused on solving a problem that i think only ar and if you want to get into web 3.0 we can get into that but i, I think only ar can solve it and so i've i've i found like what we're doing is really giving AR a, um, a home and solving a, a really important problem. Um, and, and I think hopefully it, it, it's good for the whole AR industry. Um, but but I, I subscribe to your vision. It's absolutely the right one. Yeah, no, what, what, what I what I thought was, I'm a flight simulator junkie, so I've... I've oh, I, that's cool. And I've got, I've got some fighter pilot friends who have these like crazy custom rigs and once in a while I'll fly with them and, and it's... Uh, like I kind of we toyed around with something like this very early and it was like the interesting the interesting uh, relaxation of parameters I think you've got to do is like you've got this big jet thing right which can carry a lot more computers and the weight and other sensors you could put on there like relax the form factor so the problem set's very divergent one is like you know how do you make this uh and, and pack all the and the other one is like how do you put all this crazy computing into like a flying thing, but you're at crazy G's and crazy velocity. So like the engineering, but it's so cool that you made that work. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about like, I guess you were at the Disney day, like the prototype day or something that Charlie mentioned. Um, are people gonna be able to like go to Disney and get into a red six X wing or something? And uh, you probably can't talk about it. No, I mean, look, I, I think this, this some of it is is public now, right? So I, I won't. I certainly won't get out in, in front of Disney. And obviously, there's been significant changes there recently. But but let's let's just say this: when when, and I can't remember which demo you flew, Charlie. But when you, when you came out to fly, you probably flew against you know advanced fighters and things like that. Um, when, yeah, I mean, I was doing strictly military stuff, but I was at the Disney demo day. Uh, okay. Just to clarify, Roddy, Red Six was in the Disney Accelerator. 
and then they invite press and executives and and other uh relevant people to a demo day where you meet the entrepreneurs and they mind wanders to what red six and disney could be and there's something well i i i will tell you what they showed was a roller coaster where you had a device that was you know that red six had created that would allowed you with i guess your gaze to capture uh you know to gamify the roller coaster i guess that was just a test but it was pretty cool well, I, you saw that, right? It was public. So, uh, yeah, in essence, what, what we looked at was in Disney, you've got a, um, a company with an abundance of digital content and physical experiences as well in the theme parks. And the question was, how do you connect the two and bring them together outdoors in, in a theme park out, dynamic environment? Well, what's a roller coaster? It's kind of like a little fighter airplane, right? So, it, you know, we, we kind of we, we asked the simple question, hey, could we take our stuff, the core architecture of our stuff and our capability and jam it on a roller coaster and could we ride a roller coaster at the same time we're in a digital ar environment and then you know and, and make that you know you know themes to whatever you want to do and you know i, I kind of coined the phrase it's the digital customization of a shared physical experience um and so it was it was shown publicly you know what we did we put it on a roller coaster i think it was the incredible coaster and we rode around in a digital world with you know the incredibles um through ar um, but the, the really, the really cool stuff that we that we went on to 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 show was um, kind of a Star Wars themed demo as well. And you know, I, I grew up in a coal mine in the north of England, but but Star Wars was my first love, after, probably after Superman, maybe my second love. Uh, hence the genesis of my love affair with flying. But um, when 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 the Disney guys came out to fly with us here at Santa Monica, we took them up into the environment. You you saw Charlie. But rather than taking gas off a KC-46 tanker, they were taking gas off the Millennium Falcon. And then they had they had X-wing wingmen flying alongside them. And then they were they were in dogfights with TIE fighters. And we put two moons up in the sky and we had, you know, the Death Star <laughs> and uh, a Star Destroyers coming across all to all scale. Right, you just made this so cool. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. And, uh, and, and just we're, we're living, you know, and we're firing lasers off the airplane and things like that. It was just it was just epic. So th- there's just so much goodness there, I think, for, for both companies. Well, Can I ask you a, a pilot nerd question very quickly? Yeah, yeah, of course. So, you know, there, there's the there's the cool simulators you could have at home. Then there's the really cool like Navy, Air Force, Marines ones. I've been in some of those that are they're amazing. Where do I go from? I'm in a like I'm in a high end sim mm. like the F-18 or F-35 simulator. And where do I want to go from that to Red Six? Like as a pilot. Uh, you know, the physics on my body, I get, what are the other benefits of like shifting from sim on the ground, those multi-million dollar ones to now I'm in the air. Um, like, how would you articulate the, you know, I guess, pilot nerd question? What's yeah, that R- really simply, it's a, it's a really important question. Um, and, and I'll answer it directly. And then it, it leaps to another really interesting thought. The simple explanation is the cognitive load on a fighter pilot when they're flying airplanes for real. And it's, it's not just the physicality, but it's, how do human beings operate when they are under duress, both extreme mental and physical duress and, and threat for their own life? The, the way that the human brain works is fundamentally different to being in a 1G environment on the, on the ground. And Charlie, you got a snapshot of that, right? So in, oh, in yeah. Well, you can't lift your hands. I mean, they weigh 100 pounds. Yeah. And that's the, that's the physical side. But the human brain just doesn't work the same, right? It's, it's, it's a fundamentally different thing. So it is absolutely essential we fly and we maintain flight hours. Where, where I felt we've played is we, we kind of 
we're dragging simulation outdoors, thereby negating the need to spend a fortune putting airplanes and pilots up there to train against. Because to the layperson on the ground, it looks like two pilots are getting training. But the reality of it is only one of them is getting training. The other one is pretending to do something they wouldn't do for real. And that's actually negative training. But Roni, the next step from beyond what you're talking about, and we've actually, I can't remember whether you saw this, Charlie, here at Santa Monica, but what if we now could connect people in simulators on the ground up into the real world where they are flying avatars of themselves that pilots in airplanes, i.e. me, can look out of my window and see. So I'm flying against Charlie and Roni and Ted on the ground. You guys are all in simulators. I'm flying a real airplane, but we can both see each other. Sign me up for that, please. Well, yeah. latency becomes a big issue in that context because you're going 600 miles an hour. Yeah, you you are, but that, that also affords you some advantages as well, right? And in, in terms of so the, the packet size of information we fire across the network is actually really minuscule and we'll you know we'll render locally. But also when you think about advanced computer games doing things like pose estimation and stuff like that, actually mm -hmm. when you when it comes to flight physics. Air, airplanes they don't we don't have the problem of i can't just duck behind a you know minuscule movements we we have to obey the laws of physics so there's a there's a degree of predictive um uh rendering you can do as well it actually so you're helps, just helps essentially relate. sending sending some telemetry data and and the rendering of the objects takes place in the headset or the that's computer great. yeah in that's the cockpit the one of the things i experienced when when i was taking my demo ride was at first especially with dogfighting, you don't actually see the other guy. <laughs> he's a little like dot off in the distance and and a dot, just like he's a dot on your radar. So there's not a lot to render there and you're going to engage them from several miles away. It's not like the old days where the guy's, you know, a thousand feet behind you shooting a machine gun. Uh, so I thought that was interesting. But then, and so, you know, first, when you see that, you're like, oh, I get this. I get how they pulled that off. But then uh, they upped the ante by giving you realistic carrier landings, but you're at 5,000 feet. Yeah. You know, carrier landings in the real world, practicing that again, like adversaries, requires an aircraft carrier and jets and people make mistakes and have bad outcomes. And it's just extremely risky and expensive. So uh, the fact that you could simulate that with the degree of accuracy that I saw, and you mentioned the in-air refueling, which again is uh, extremely dangerous and hard to practice. And yeah. uh the the entire giant also the scale right i mean a a, a tanker is, is like an 18 wheeler and and a fighter plane is like a little tiny gnat and so you know the scale of it and the accuracy of the rendering was rather startling so the thing that i thought oh well it's going to be simple because it's far away actually got terribly close oh, and, yeah and with, sure. with a high degree of realism Oh, ma massively realistic, and and actually, even on the on the fighters, yes, they they start a long way away, but when you're traveling at one thousand five hundred miles an hour, that closure is pretty fast, right? They get they get uh, they, they, they get up close really quickly, and and of course, when we start visually maneuvering against them, which which absolutely, there's still the need to do that for sure. Then you you see how big they get, and and how you know the demands of the processing, and then. To the point on the carrier and the the tanker, you know what I love about the the aircraft carrier and guys, the, the you guys haven't seen it, but obviously we'll hope you, you come see it soon. Is when you're flying 
what Charlie's describing is we're putting an aircraft carrier at 5,000 feet, but we don't just put an aircraft carrier at 5,000 feet. We create the ocean as well, and we create- Yeah, the there's a plane. The there, there are several everything. planes, yeah. And so as, as you're flying an approach into this aircraft carrier at 5,000 feet, the optics are so good that you can't see the, the land beneath you. So it looks like you're flying down to, towards the ocean, and you'll probably you'll probably agree with this, Charlie. When you when you go to land at the carrier and you're coming off the end of the carrier, you look down and you feel so close to the ocean. You're like, oh! But the reality of it is, you're at five thousand feet, completely safe. So it's just testament to you know I, I think the the optical solution that we built. Yeah, awesome. it's, a, it's it's super interesting. Like the point that you bring up about being in the real aircraft, like where my mind goes is the real stakes matter, right? Like when you're actually in the physical device that, you know, is a multi, multi-million dollar piece of hardware and yeah. all these people that surround it as an ecosystem to get it up in the air flying safely and keep you safe as a pilot. Um, do, you, do you think that there is, like, this is an interesting perspective because if, if I was a business guy sort of discussing the different sort of business trajectories of this, part of my brain is, and part of my business acumen is saying, how do we create the simulation across the entire field of what you're trying to do? And how do we cost that? And can we actually create the mental stakes that, you know, you believe you're actually getting into that plane, maybe even tricking you, right? Um, versus, okay, you still have to get up in a $30 million aircraft and really do it for real, right? So you have to balance somehow I mean, those are must be really interesting discussions internally. How do, you, how do you get there, right? Yeah, for sure. And I think, look, the just in the context of flying airplanes, you're quite right. And you're alluding to where, we, where we're going with this as a company, because ultimately we want to connect all war fighters across all domains together into, you know, a massive multiplayer video game played outdoors. Yeah, with if you AR want any skill, you're not it's massive. It's, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, it's absolutely massive. And so we're, we're, we're absolutely focused on doing that. And there's no, there's no doubt about it that the physicality of the experience is essential to training. Um, what we're arguing is that we can replace the billions of dollars we have to spend to provide people to train against and stuff to train against and stuff to blow up. We'll, we'll do all of that in, in AR. So the, 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 the value proposition is massive. By, I mean, billions of dollars of offset, right? At scale, we think just for airborne, it's $11 billion of offset. It's much faster to produce pilots. Um, you're producing them to a higher standard because now we can simulate any threat we want in the world. And, and, and oh, by the way, it's safer because there's less to bump into. Yeah. So, and, and then there's other cool stuff like, you know, 50% reduction in carbon emissions that we're, we are pumping into the atmosphere. Sure. Obviously it gets intense there. So there's some, there's some really cool stuff, but I think, I think AR in my mind is, is a much more interesting technology than VR as, as I look at it. And when I think about, the future of, of metaverse and the future of this entire landscape. I think undoubtedly it's an AR future because I, I don't believe human beings want to be isolated for hours on end on mass in, in a virtual realm. And I think, and I think it has to be ubiquitous in nature, which means it has to be mobile, which means it has to work outdoors in dynamic environments. And so I think, I think the future of all of this, whatever use case is an AR future. And I think over time, VR will be considered a subset of, of AR or mixed reality. But, but I, I firmly believe the future is AR. Yeah. Dan, yeah. can I ask you a philosophical, quick philosophical question? Um, yeah. I, I, you and I are very much in agreement on that. Uh, I took a lot of flack for saying that early, but I, I think we're on the same page very much. Yeah, no. I Do you agree. see a future where I'm looking at the war in Ukraine, right, with Ukraine and Russia fighting and everyone's on edge, that we get AR so accurate, so realistic. And I think both of us know how close we are to that with where 
NVIDIA mm -hmm. and AMD and others are going, where war is just no longer about bloodshed. It's just about, I beat you. No one has to die, go home. You know, like, why do I have to actually blow up your city, kill you, blow up your plane? Uh, we could run it. We could actually do it in a real way like you are and go, all right, you lost. Go home, give up the land, whatever is going on. Do, do you see that thing where we gamify war for real? Like that becomes the war and everyone agrees, like, why do we actually want to suffer the economic damage and the loss of life? But we'll show that we're more skilled. And if we did engage, all these people will die and tens of billions would be lost. So why go through that? Like rational humans would never want to go through that. I mean, is this in your mind or am I just like on a very far limb right here? I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head, right? Rational humans would never want to do that, right? But we're not necessarily always dealing in a rational world. And as much as we might we might wish and hope and pray that that, that would be the case, I, I, I sadly, you know, given some of the actors in the world right now, I, I just don't think it is the case because actually you could argue, why don't we just go play in the World Cup and whoever wins the uh, soccer game, uh, you know, wins. And so, <laughs> but but I, but I do think... Uh, I do think there is there are a multitude of, of use cases being able to do some cool stuff in beyond AR and let's let's call metaverse. So like creating permanent um, environments that that live and breathe and adapt in relation to what you are doing. And one of the limitations we've always had in 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 my domain of, of air combat training and it, and it applies across the joint force is we'll go up, we'll fly a mission, we'll we'll execute that mission in training, we'll land and we'll spend hours debriefing that mission. And then the next day we'll go fly again. Unfortunately, in, in combat and conflict, that, 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 that's not the way it happens, right? So you go up on night one of the war and you exert effect, be it a kinetic or non-kinetic effect, and then you land and the, the opposition adapts to that and they make decisions at the tactical operational strategic level. And, and then when the next guys go the, the day after, they inherit the outcomes of both the effects of what we did on night one, but the, the adapting changing landscape of, of, of how the enemy have, have reacted. Um, and we're unable to train to that. But, but with metaverse, if, if we accept that it, you know, key, key criteria of the metaverse are it's synchronous with real life, it's continuous in nature, it's persistent. Well, if you put in AI algorithms, now you can have a living, breathing world that adapts to the training outcomes. And I start, I start to think philosophically, now we can start to conduct campaign level, multi-day, multi-week training and, and doing exactly what you're talking about, Roni, in terms of wargaming it to end state. I, I, I hate to use the term wargaming, pick a context, right? There's, there's, there's nicer <laughs> things to talk about, but the, but the point remains, I think living, breathing, adaptable worlds are, are, are going to be um, at the forefront of what we do in the future. And I think this is really exciting. And, and by the way, Roni, what you're referring to and talking about in a thesis actually exists all the time on the planet. We call it corporate, corporate espionage. So <laughs> companies move and play war games without physically blowing up each other's company, right? Or killing each other's employees to the tunes of trillions and trillions of dollars. In fact, there is one country on planet Earth that has gotten so good at it that their entire culture, you know which one I'm talking about because you've been there many times. I've, I've been on the other side of their war yes, game. You have been on the other side of that war, Rodeo. You know what you're talking about. Right? So corporate espionage is essentially the future of war. Um, the question is, you know, if you can remove the full-on crazy of people that still need to blow shit up and 
other humans to achieve those objectives. It's a very interesting thesis to kind of play out. I got to tell you something really cool, uh, Dan, that you're bringing is this like pure, I get a sense of this pure love for what this all is and a really good understanding of what the metaverse could be that, you know, the, the people I worked with over the years who really got it, were right in that zone. You're coming from that place. It's not cynical. You're not caught up in the noise of what one media outlet says. You sort of see it. And that's what's very, very cool about this discussion with you. Yeah, for, for sure. I, I think you are exactly right. I think your, your vision was bang on. And, and I, I just think it's a, it's a little ways out for the consumer. But I think it's inevitable. I, I, I don't understand how people don't understand it's coming. Um, I, I think it's absolutely inevitable. Um, the, the question is, how do you get there? You know, the challenge for all AR companies is how do you get there in good order in time for that tech and use case and all of that stuff to arrive at the same time? And my view is the right place to play as a, as a company um, right now is an enterprise and focusing on um, really important problems. And I, and I think for, for AR, what's interesting, obviously it comes from a passion and a, and a background that I have. But I think we're actually solving really important problems with AR that I think only AR can solve. And that, that's really, really good for the whole industry, because I think the vision you outlined and the vision I, I talked to, I think it's inevitable. Um, it's just a matter of time. So we were talking a little while ago about Microsoft's uh, IVAS problem with the Army. And, you know, they've had this, you know, $22 billion program reduced to 400 million and apparently may be reduced even, even further. Do you think Red6 is developing technology that might have solved some of the problems that they're having with IVAS? Well, I, I look, I think I, I don't want to sit here at all and, and in any way, shape, or form disparage other companies' efforts. No, don't. I mean, it's not disparaging, it's speculating. No, for sure. Yeah, no, for sure. I get it. I, I would just say that they're, they're, diff, they're different slightly different challenges, right? And there's a, there's a potent cocktail of problems that that we have to solve to enable that. But I think we have taken a really significant step um, in a number of aspects that, 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 that we've created a solution that I think is at least enabling for what they're trying to do with that program. So I think I'm looking at this certainly with, with interest. There are unique challenges to doing it for a dismounted uh, individual running around versus vehicle-based for sure. But I, I think at the core of what, what's going on there is you've got an indoor product, right? That we're trying to adapt for outdoors and it just doesn't work, um, you know, as, as in, the, in the context of the environment that we needed to work in. And so there's some really interesting technical challenges there. I am, you know, the vision statement of my company is to see all warfighters across all domains connected together in a joint augmented training battle space. So I think inevitably we will we'll, um, we're, we're watching that program and that uh, that effort with real interest, Charlie. And I, I think you and I have, have talked about this. I, I think we've got something that's that would be really really additive to what the army is is doing there, and we're, we're certainly interested in that discussion for sure. Charlie, I'm I'm going to be more candid because I know why Dan can't be here. Um, I think the real issue, what's very very impressive about Red Six, is that Dan is one of those guys, right? He is a fighter pilot. He has a clear vision. He knows exactly what he wants, um, and he brought it together. And you don't need the same scale team or money to do that. Mm -hmm. um, I think the, you know, if you want to do that in something like IVAS, you need that same thing. You need that purity of vision and leadership. In that, that's the main focus, right? It can't be the tangential thing of a gigantic company. That's sort of a peripheral thing they're playing around with. Like for Dan, this is it. This is like life stream and passion and. I think that's what something like IVAS ultimately needs. 
and then it could work. It's not that it can fail. Like Dan's proving how great you can make things happen in a very complex high velocity environment in the air, you absolutely can make IVAS work. So I think it's more about the, the people and clarity of vision and desire to make it work and the lack of bureaucracy and agility. Ted, we talked about this earlier, like why small high-speed Navy SEAL-like startups can do so much more than these larger organizations. And I think like if you just compare Red Six to what's happening at IVAS, you know, if the IVAS guys are out there listening, you need to build a Red Six-like team and then you'll, you'll get it done. That's how, that's how it'll work. Well, that's all the time yeah. we have. Um, Dan, thank you for coming on the show. This has been a great conversation. I did not, I, I'm not surprised that Roni is such a fanboy. I'm a, uh, a fanboy. <laughs> so uh, I, I would encourage you, Roni, based on your mutual admiration society with Dan, to take advantage of his uh, uh, kind offer to take you up uh, and give you the experience because it is uh, really unforgettable. Yeah, I, I I really appreciate it, uh, all three of you. It's it's a pleasure to chat to you, and and I I'd love to extend an invitation to come fly. And you know, I, as I, as I said to Charlie over the years, ju just you don't have to believe me. Just just yeah. come give it a chance. Sit in the back and come see for yeah. yourself. And, yeah, seeing uh, seeing is believing. Uh, anyway, guys, have a great weekend, Dan. Good to see you, or virtually see you, and uh, we'll see everybody else next Friday. Wonderful. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Thank you.